Lord, I just thank you so much for this wonderful sharing and just the richness of relationships. Thank you for how you have not left us alone, but you've given us one another. And Lord, I just pray that you would come right now and write your word on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I met my husband when I was a couple months from being 17, a very long time ago. And we dated till I got out of college and got married. And in February, we will have been married 41 years. We've been together. We dated five years before that, so 46 years. That's a long time. And um, when we got married, of course, the ceremony, uh, the, the sign of our commitment, um, one of the things that's a really big deal to people, of course, is the wedding ring. And so you can see I'm not wearing that ring right now, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, that was very meaningful to me, and certainly my marriage commitment has been very meaningful. Obviously, the Lord has allowed us to stay together, and we still like each other most days anyway. Um, and so through the years, of course, you know, and, and it, it's a beautiful ring, but it's not a huge elaborate ring. Our, our ceremony wasn't huge and elaborate like so many people do today. But over the years, I've had to get that ring patched up. And you take it to a jeweler, and they're like, oh, you know, you have a chip in your diamond. I'm like, yes. <laughs> but this ring is a great illustration of our marriage. You know, you hang on, you patch it up, you press on with it, okay? You don't go get a new model, at least not in my. So I had the same ring. But um, uh, last or summer before last, a whole family, we were up on the lake, and we had borrowed this lovely party barge from some wonderful people. Uh, we have a fishing boat normally and had the whole family out there, my dream day, and it was just the best day. We had so much fun on an island on Lake Washita. And as we were taking their wonderful party barge back in, um, I did something really stupid. I reached out and grabbed the post because I'm used to smaller boats, and my arm got wedged between the boat and the post, and the boat kept going. And I heard a pop. I thought the post broke, but my wrist snapped and dislocated. And so my boys, uh, their firefighters, fixed me up a sling, and they took me to the emergency room. And I sat there, you know, for a while. And they did the little intake, and I'm sitting, and I'm waiting, and, and my hand is turning blue. I don't know how long I was out there, and I finally said, you know, my hand's turning blue here. And they realized my ring was still on. And not taking my wedding ring off. I wear it all the time. And uh, so they started trying to cut my ring off, and they worked. Mind you, they would given me no pain medicine. I could not even move my hand, but literally they had ring cutter, and the doctor and the nurse probably 45 minutes trying to cut my ring off until a wonderful nurse said, let me get another cutter, and then it finally came off. Um, at one point, I was, certainly was praying, but at one point I started praying out loud because it was getting serious. <laughs> And they were not entering in with me, so I don't know what they were thinking, but I was like, you know, I can't have any pain medicine. I'm praying out loud. This is getting serious. So finally they got the ring off, and, you know, it was pulled apart. And, of course, I was in a cast for a long time. And I have not gotten that ring fixed yet because at that point I never wanted to see that ring again. I said, I'm keeping Eddie, but I don't want the ring because, I mean, I hated that ring. And so I haven't got it fixed. It's been over a year Um and I'm probably ready to do it now. But in the meantime, for a long time, of course, I didn't wear a ring. And finally, I got one of these little silicone rings. But, but the point was, was I any less married because I wasn't wearing the symbol? No. 
Um, did I act differently because I didn't have that symbol on? Was that ring what controlled my marriage commitment? No. And, and what made the difference in that commitment? It was because it was written on my heart. It's because I, I love my husband, at least most days. And um, the way I act is a representation of that commitment. The way I act around other men, the choices I make, how I treat my husband, how I spend my time, what I do day in and day out in the routine, mundane things of life are really the representation of my marriage commitment. And eventually, you know, I'll get that symbol back probably, so we'll see. But um, I was thinking about that because, you know, one of the things Paul has covered over and over in Romans for us is really about what not only what has really happened in who we are, but how in the new covenant it's written on our heart. And that's what's so different. Not that the outward doesn't have a place. There is a place for it, and we're going to talk about that tonight. But the key is always about what is really written on your heart. And then how you live is a representation of that. And so I want us to be thinking about that tonight. As we start in our in our passage uh, between chapter six and seven, in chapter five we ended it ended Paul ended with where sin increased, grace increased all the more, and so therefore the objection was, well, let me defend grace because if grace is there, then what's the point? And so in chapter six, that's what he does. He says, ask the question of what an objector would have been at the beginning of 6. What shall we go on sinning so grace can increase? And we saw last week the picture of baptism. It was a metaphor. Certainly that is a symbol, but a metaphor of death to life. A very important thing. And Paul is really great to, to bring in these symbols, but also to teach us with metaphors what has really happened to us to help us understand. Um, and then... It was all about we died to sin and we have a new status. And I want us to think about that. Just like my status is I'm a married woman, whether I'm actually wearing a ring or not. That's who I am. What is your status? And he's really going to be talking about this in both these sections we're going to look at tonight. Um, he ended verse 14, For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. So he's already defended the doctrine of grace in 1 through 14. But because it's so critical, he's going to go at it from a different perspective. And so um, starting in our section tonight, he's going to, starting in verse 15 of chapter 6, he's going to use a new metaphor, the slavery metaphor. And so these, the passage from the first part uh, of 6 is very parallel to what we're looking at tonight. Okay, so let's start in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And we'll finish those verses in a minute. And so Paul explains why it is impossible for a believer to continue into sin. 
why a believer is to yield the parts of their body to righteousness. And in this section, he's dealing with two groups that have misinterpreted what he is saying about grace. The Jews who held to the law thought if the law was rejected as a means of salvation, then immorality would follow. The antinomians thought, well, we're free from the law, so sin doesn't matter. What we do doesn't matter. We can sin all that we want because grace will abound. Those were two extremes. And so he is given reasons for why we should not do that. Now, at the beginning of chapter 6, he spoke of death to sin, and he used baptism as the symbol of, remember, our union with Christ. We died to sin, but we're alive to Christ. And so now he's trying to connect, especially with these Roman believers who could totally relate to the slavery metaphor. And it's always about, your conduct is always about a matter of lordship. What is written on your heart? So our first truth is this. Conduct always reflects whom one is serving. Conduct always reflects whom one is serving. That's why Paul uses the change of masters metaphor. Now, let's, do, let's recap a little bit what I started this, uh, this uh, study with. In Roman society, slavery was very common. At least 20% of the population in the city of Rome were slaves, and it was even higher outside the capital city. You could become a slave if you were born to a slave woman, if you fell into debt, if you were sold by your parents, if you sold yourself, or if you were a captive after a military defeat. The majority of slaves were set free after a designated time if they, were, if they provided loyal service. They also would accumulate a fund called a, pecu a peculium, and they could use that fund to buy their freedom. But that was not true of the slaves that worked in the mines. These were the criminals and uncooperative prisoners. They only earned an early death. That was the only thing they earned. And that was a powerful theme for Paul with the whole sin and death metaphor. Okay? So he's using slavery to illustrate the shift in status. In the first century, status was greatly determined by one's relationship to others, particularly a patron. And Paul is going to use this in our next section of chapter 7 as an illustration of the woman's status in marriage. But here he's using the status of slavery. He makes the point of our shift in status because we are redeemed, we are set free, we have a new master. In the first part of chapter 6, we see that as slaves to sin, we died to sin, that was in verse 2, and I want you to notice this because I think this is interesting. It's not the master's sin that has died. It's us, the slave, that has died. It's the believer who has been crucified with Christ. Therefore, sin is still around. You know, that's why we still battle, at least in our flesh. Sin has not died. We have died. Okay? Therefore, Paul warns us of the danger of behaving in accordance with a return to an old master. When we choose to sin, we are going back to an old master willingly after having been set free. So I want to talk um, from the verses I just read, 15 through 18. Let me make sure I did read all the way to 18. Yes, 
okay? I want to talk about five reasons that we cannot continue sinning, okay? Number one, sin is slavery. Sin is slavery. The problem is sin is deceptive. It's not presented as slavery. It's presented as freedom. That's the deceptive part. It's presented as freedom. But the, tr the truth with that is sin is, sin is bondage. It enslaves us. And here we have the contrast in this passage. We can be a slave to sin and Satan, or we can be a slave to righteousness and God. We have that choice because of what Christ has done. We get to choose that. Number two, the, other, the next reason we can't remain a, a, a slave to sin or shouldn't sin is sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. We see this in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death. Also, on down in verse 21, he says, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And finally in 23, for the wages of sin is death. So sin leads to death. You remember we talked what death was? The, uh, maybe it was last week. Death is separation. Death is separation. And remember what Satan told Adam and Eve? won't surely die you see the deception it's complete deception separating from God ultimately eternal separation but even as believers there is a separation in the relationship when we choose to sin we're not lost we are still uh, we still belong to the Lord but something comes between us and there is a separation when we choose to sin number three the next reason is Christians are freed from sin slavery. Christians are freed from sin slavery. The word redemption means to buy out of slavery. That's the whole point. So when you, I, I'm hoping we get through with Romans that a lot of these words will have greater meaning for you. Redemption, justification, because we have, we have looked at all of these aspects, different, different aspects of the gospel, and all that the Lord has done for us in so many ways. Um, so we were bought out of slavery. And I want to read 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 to you, talking about how we were bought. Let me get that. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So we were bought out of slavery by the blood of Jesus. What does that say when we choose to go back, ladies? The blood of Jesus means nothing to us. When we choose to sin, what he gave to buy us out of slavery means nothing to us. I just keep thinking of that illustration in Hosea. You know, he took her, he loved her, provided for her, and, and she left him and gave all the credit to her lover, and he bought her back again. I mean, 
that's who we are. So the next reason is why we should not sin is we have become slaves of God. We have become slaves of God. Okay? And so in verse 22, I'm going to go ahead and read 19 through the end, and then we're going to refer to some of these verses. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. Now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, there it is, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have become slaves to God, and here's the truth with that. Slavery to God brings true freedom. Slavery to God brings true freedom. He has the right to be your master because he's the creator. And what is real freedom? Real freedom is the ability to be what God made you to be, which is ultimately to glorify him. Having the ability to bring glory to God is why you were created, and being able to do that is true freedom. In Isaiah 43, 7 The Lord says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have have created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And in verse 21 of that same chapter, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. We were created to, to sing the praise of God, to live out the praise of God, to be that example. And you only know true freedom and fulfillment when you are fulfilling that for which God created you. And so um, serving Christ means living a righteous life. I want to read you about that freedom in John 8, 31, what Jesus had to say about it. This is John 8. I'm going to read 31 and 32 and then 34 and 36. When we're thinking about being a slave to God, okay, To the Jews who had believed in him, who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then on 34 and 36, he said, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, that that sins is a continuous sinning, okay? Not not if you have one sin, it doesn't mean you're a slave, but if you're continuing in sin, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So there's great freedom in belonging to God and being his slave. Now, notice... Um, verse 22 talks about how holiness leads to eternal life and that we are to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness. 
this points to the day in and day out choosing, living out what is going to please God versus what our flesh may want. It's just like marriage. Like marriage is not built on those getaways and it's not built on the marriage ceremony. Marriage is pretty much built and lived out in the day in, day out, boring, mundane, what you're doing the next thing together. The difficult times where you hang together, yes. The fun times, yes. But the majority of it is the day in and the day out. Choosing and making a commitment and and doing what's right. The same thing is true with your relationship with the Lord. That's where you're refined. That's where you're changed. It's in the day in, day out. It takes work and discipline. We all want a magic bullet, but there is not a magic bullet. So, um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that's different for us from the Jews. Yes, it's lived out that way, but it flows from a heart that's been changed now. It flows from a heart that's made alive by the Spirit of God living in us. It's not just an outward duty like the Jews. That's why it was so much of a yoke for them, the law, because it was done in their own strength, and, and, and they didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. In the New Covenant, we have the Spirit, and that's where we're going to get to in chapter 8, which is going to be beautiful and glorious. But we're in that bridge right now. Of This is the Old Covenant. The new covenant is different because we're from death to life. We have the spirit of God. Nevertheless, we still have to make those day in, day out choices. Okay? It flows from our connection. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 20 and 21, let's take a look at that. Let me get back over here to Romans. So he says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. In other words, you didn't. You didn't have the power for righteousness to control you. You did what you wanted. When you were slaves to sin, okay, I read that. What benefit, look at 21, what benefit, and let's put those in like air quotes, did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. All right, so here's our next truth. The only benefit, in quotes, of sin is shame and death. The only benefit of sin is shame and death. Sin results in shame. Think about Adam and Eve. You know what happened after they sinned? They hid from God. They were ashamed. Uh, They recognized their nakedness and they felt shame and they tried to cover themselves. And so let's talk about two types of shame. First, there's misplaced shame. Misplaced shame is when we feel shame for something that honors God. No matter how weak or foolish it makes us look, or even for a shameful situation, unless you are participating in it. It's like you care more about other people's opinion, and you're ashamed to be bold for Jesus. You're ashamed of your faith. You're ashamed people make fun of you or make fun of the Bible or what you believe. When you feel that shame from other people, that's misplaced shame. And so let me give you a couple of verses. Uh, in 2 Timothy 1.8, it says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as his prisoner. Paul is writing to Timothy. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Timothy was not to be ashamed of Paul. And so when you feel shame 
of the gospel or shame to speak up for your faith, that's misplaced shame. Uh, 1 Peter 4.16 is another reference. 1 Peter 4.16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Is that name written on your heart? And then Mark 8.38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So if you're ashamed of Jesus or your faith or what the Word of God says in any way, and it keeps you silent and it keeps you from living out loud who you are and what God has done in you, then that is misplaced shame. But the second type of shame is well-placed shame. This is feeling shame for participating in anything that dishonors God. No matter how strong or right it makes you look in the eyes of others, you should have shame for anything that you participate in that dishonors God. So I'm going to give you 1 Corinthians 15:34. Well, I'll start at 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So there should be shame when you're participating in anything. But I want to say this. For those of us that are believers, when we sin, there should be shame. But God uses that in a way to draw us back. But you don't feel it indefinitely. If you confess, repent, and trust God's forgiveness, you move on. You don't stay in shame indefinitely. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I know whom I have believed, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness, it says, through his name in Acts 10.43. I know who I've believed, and I trust him of what I've committed to him. And so our trust and hope is in Christ. Our part is to repent and turn back to him. But then we trust him, and we don't stay there in that shame because that's not beneficial. Okay? The new covenant doesn't tell us to, to be what we're going to become. It tells us to be what we already are through our union with Christ, who is living in us through the Spirit. Everything he calls us to flows from that union. Keep in mind um, that to our minds, in our culture, all slavery is evil. Freedom in our culture, freedom and independence go together. But that wasn't true in the first century, nor does God see it that way. Because think about this. Do you remember in Romans 1 when God gave them over and removed his hand of restraint that that was, that was his wrath? That was not a good thing. So don't think that complete freedom and independence is a good thing. That's not how God sees it, okay? So the reality is you will either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. It's one or the other. So when you're a slave to God, the benefit is holiness and eternal life. So that's the truth. Being a slave to God leads to holiness and eternal life. Being a slave to God leads to holiness and eternal life. Romans 3.23 here says, The wages of sin is death, 
Now remember the slave, the the slaves that were in the mines. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And um, I love this quote from John MacArthur. He said, "Only the Son of God could pay the cost of salvation, but He calls His followers to pay the cost of discipleship. Only the Son of God could pay the cost of salvation." but he calls his followers to pay the cost of discipleship. So who is Lord is the key to your status. And so as we move to chapter 7, we go from the status of slavery to the status of marriage. And so in this case, we're going to see the law as the abusive husband and Jesus as the non-abusive husband. Okay? Now, Paul is probably in this referring more to the Jewish laws of marriage in this illustration than Roman law. Um, In Rome, only marriage among Roman citizens had any legal standing. And in the Jewish Torah, it required a woman to remain married to her husband for as long as he lived. And once again, in Paul's analogy, it's not the husband who has died, but it's the wife. So once again, you see what the Lord is telling us. The Jewish believers could see that they're no longer bound to the law because now their union is with Christ in his death. So, this is our truth, and then we're going to read the scripture. Jesus is the new master in place of the law. So let me begin. Let me get back over to Romans in chapter 7. He's really trying to get this point about status across. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, there's the the picture of the wife dying, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Now, um, some Jewish Christians argued that the Gentile converts had to obey the law and the Jewish requirements in order to be Christian. This was the whole big thing at the Jerusalem Council. They were called Judaizers, and they were always a problem for Paul because he totally did not hold to that. And so John MacArthur said that God's law was so dominant in ancient Israel that many Jews had made it virtually an idol. By the time of Christ, many Jews considered obedience to the law to be the means of salvation. Faithfulness to the law came to supersede faith in God who had given the law. Now, Jesus affirmed the law in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen uh, will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So, 
Jesus didn't do away with the law, but the law has a different role, okay? And so the shift from captivity under law to the lordship of Christ was like a new exodus for the Jews. They were moving from trying on their own to follow the law to have the indwelling spirit that we talked about. Now, a lot, a lot of uh, older commentators struggle with this a little bit. They thought this was indelicate because in verse 4, in this analogy to, to belonging to Christ, it says, So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised to the dead. Okay, so your old husband, the law, you're the new husband, in order that you might bear fruit for God. Okay, so a lot of people thought that was indelicate, bearing fruit to God. If you can picture, you got this new husband. So the old husband, the law, was impotent is the picture. And we've already seen that. The law could not provide what you need to have a righteous life. And there was no power to produce true fruit. And so a lot of older, I thought that was kind of humorous. We live in such an out there culture that it seems interesting to me that that would be indelicate. But anyway... I don't know if that's an indictment on us, maybe, that it's not a deal. But the underlying emphasis all through Romans is that salvation produces total transformation. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are to produce godly fruit, both in our attitudes. You see Galatians 5 love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the fruits of the Spirit, and in our actions. John 15, we can do nothing if we're not abiding in the vine, and he wants us to produce fruit that will last. That can only happen through that union. So the question becomes, what does the Christian do with the law then? So here's two things. Number one, we look at the law to see Christ because it does represent the divine standard, and who he is. We look at the law to see who is he, to love him, to know him, to trust him more. And we also look at the law to test ourselves, to see if we do know him, love him, and trust him. It is a measure for us to examine ourselves. So there is still a role for the law, but the law in itself doesn't have the power to help us do it, okay? Just like that ring I wear is not what is the power to make me make the kind of choices that a married woman should make, okay? It might remind me of that, but it doesn't give me power. So I want to end, as we've been talking tonight about the change in status and, and how it says, by dying, let me just get over here at the end of this. In verse 5, in the old way, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work, so we bore fruit for death. We've already talked about how sin produces death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. It doesn't say we don't serve. It doesn't say that we don't do what's righteous. We serve in a new way not in the old way of the written code. And I found this really great um, teaching that I want to share with you from Alexander McLaren, who I love, 
that is a beautiful picture of this. Okay, so I want you to go to the Old Testament to Jeremiah 17, verse 1. And we've talked a lot about what has really happened on our hearts. What's our status? And then what does our outward and how we live our life show about the one to whom we belong? And what's the role of doing what's right? And what's the role of sin in all this? And, and I want to make a connection here uh, between a couple of things. So in Jeremiah 17, 1. Um, and, and, of course, the prophets were always calling Israel out for their sin. But it says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. And so we see the role of sin in thinking about why, why would we choose to sin? Because not just before we're believers, but when we sin, it is being written on our heart. Now, in Hebrew, he says the heart means much more than the seat of affections. In Hebrew, it's the center of your spiritual life. Just like in, in the physical, it's the center of the body. It involves your thoughts, your affections, your purposes, your desires. They're all included. All the issues of life come out of the heart, the whole outgoings of your being. It is the fountain and the source of all activity. It's the whole inner man. And so in this metaphor, we see that sin stains your soul, so to speak. It colors you. And even as believers, when we choose, we are engraving who we are with that sin. There is effect. And notice it says, and on the horns of the altar. And, you know, that's where they would put the blood for the sacrifice. Part of it would be on the horns of the altar. And so it's interesting, he says, to think of, of sin engraving the horns of the altar. So even when the blood is put on there, you still see a mark as it flows off the horns of the altar. And so he says, all wrongdoing makes indelible marks on your character. All wrongdoing or sin makes indelible records on your memory. Any of us that have sinned in the past, those, those thoughts come to mind. It's, it pollutes your mind. It pollutes your imagination. All wrongdoing makes indelible marks on your conscience. It colors your conscience, how sensitive you are, how you see right and wrong. But, but Christ comes along, and Christ has a twofold work. His job is to erase and to rewrite, and I love that. He says, I will blot out as a cloud their transgressions. He's the only one that can blot out our transgressions. And then he says, I will put my law into their minds and write it in their hearts. Only Christ can do that work. And so let's look at now 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 and see the New Testament connection to that. 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Paul is writing this to the Corinthians. And I want us to think about our own hearts and who we are in light of what we've talked about of the Spirit of God and what he wants to do in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, Paul says to them, to believers, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, 
but on tablets of the human heart. And so, ladies, the way you live your life reveals that, that you're a letter from Christ to the world around you. You are a letter from Christ. So I want to encourage you, give your heart to him. Give your heart to him. Every day, every moment, give your heart to him and how you choose to spend your time, how you choose the things you look at, the things you don't look at. And let the new owner, because you are owned, you have been bought with a price. You are Let the new owner write his name on the book that he has bought, which is you.